0: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today we'll hear all about seeking approval with the best of intentions. Many of you know Faith Saley as a panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and as an Emmy Award-winning contributor to CBS Sunday Morning. She is also an accomplished actor and a wonderful writer. Her 2016 memoir, Approval Junkie, was adapted as a one-woman show by the Alliance Theatre in 2019 with Faith on stage here in her hometown of Atlanta. One year later, Approval Junkie was to have opened in New York at the Minetta Lane Theater in Greenwich Village. That would have been mid-March 2020, just as the world shut down. There was a happy ending to the delayed debut of Approval Junkie, and now, it's available for you to experience as an Audible original. Faith Salee is here to share the excitement. Faith, welcome back to City Lights.
1: Lois, could you, could you hear me smiling during that whole inter <laughs> My cheeks hurt. It was, first of all, it was very kind and generous, and I'm thrilled to talk with you. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, what a joy. Now, first... How wonderful it was to have you here in Atlanta recently for a recording of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me.
1: Oh my gosh, it was the first live, my first live Wait, Wait show in exactly two years. And to return to a live show in front of 4,600 amazing Atlantans and people from Georgia.
0: We were all, you were there. I was We were all so ready to laugh, weren't we? Oh, yes. And there was such loud cheering for your hometown self. I hope you caught that across the footlights.
1: Lois, don't you think the cheering was for my sweatshirt?
0: I think. Should we tell
1: everybody how it said?
0: (laughs) Your sweatshirt had a (laughs) something to do with the excitement and the cheering i think mainly the cheering was for you but tell us about your sweatshirt because it's clearly an extension of your faith
1: oh thank you my sweatshirt so usually when i do a weight weight show i don't care if it's radio and podcast i want to dress up because i spend most of my life not dressed up so i usually you know wear like a fancy dress and this is a fox theater but i thought if i'm ever going to wear this sweatshirt with sparkly heels now's the time and it's a (laughs) it's a bright red sweatshirt that says thank you stacy abrams in all caps and when I walked out wearing that, and I had this moment, Lois, where I was like, are the people in the mezzanine and in the balcony going to be able to read this? I think they read it. When I walked out and pulled on my sweatshirt so everyone could read it, the place went nuts. And you're very kind. That's not for me. That's for Stacey Abrams, and that's for Atlanta Pride.
0: Mm, well, I think there's a combination. <laughs> now, I later saw on Twitter that your return to the fox had bittersweet personal meaning (laughs) the fairy godmother in me felt very sad about that
1: it's so okay now lois so share that
0: story please
1: yes i will so my senior prom which would have been the spring of 1989 but who's counting (laughs) and my mom was on the prom committee it was held in the Egyptian ballroom of the Fox Theater. But I didn't go. I didn't go. I had to ask my mom what the decorations looked like. I was not asked. And I, being a burgeoning feminist, thought, okay, well, no one asked me. So I'll ask someone. I asked my friend Greg. I'm not going to give his last name because I I love him. And 30 years later, he apologized. (laughs) I asked him if he'd go with me and he never gave me an answer. And I will tell you that 30 years later, he told me he thought I was joking, but. I didn't go to, to my prom at the Fox. My dad took me out to dinner. It was a lovely night. And so to return to the Fox Theater as a middle-aged lady, thrilled to be there, to make people laugh, I, I guess that's, that's the last laugh, right?
0: Triumphant, yes. Faith, we have had the joy of following Approval Junkie with you first in an author interview in 2016. It was the best one I ever got to do, but don't tell the others, Lois. I
1: love the way you read.
0: Oh, what a gift that is from you. Thank you. And then, as you worked on the script with director Amanda Watkins and the composer Brandon Bush for the world premiere at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. You've described Approval Junkie as your no-holds-barred look into your journey with self-acceptance. Would you tell us about the impact of the book and play on your life?
1: Mm. ah, it has been the gift that keeps on giving in ways that I never could have anticipated. When I decided to write my story, and I'm I'm kind of doing air quotes that no one can see because because my story was one that I wrote in my early 40s and now I'm now I'm a 50-year-old lady with new insights and new things to say and new questions to ask. But when I decided to write my story, I just thought it would be exciting to get it published. I just had stories I wanted to share and hope that they would resonate with people. And so the book comes out and it coincided with childbirth, with literal childbirth. So I was being very productive at that point in my life and expressing myself in many ways. And a few months after the book comes out, I was invited by the wonderful Susan V. Booth of the Alliance Theatre to turn it into a one-woman show for the 50th anniversary of the Alliance Theatre, where you know this, Lois, because we've talked about it. I grew up going to the Alliance Theatre as a child. Like, to me, you know the, the Alliance Theatre is world-class theatre. And to me, that was Broadway. That was the place, that That was a the theatre in which I sat, and my heart was pulled forward. And I thought, I, I, I don't just want to do that, I need to do that. And so I was newly an author to have Susan Booth invite me to become a playwright at the place where the seeds of my professional and purposeful life were planted was was a dream I didn't even know to have. And and I will also tell you that I, I looked back at her email years later and she sent it on what would have been my mother's 70th birthday, which, yeah, which was a really beautiful thing. And then I, you know, premiered the the show at the Alliance in 2019. And it was it was a dream come true. And then to have the next iteration of the dream, right, to have it off Broadway, that was, as you said in your intro, that was deferred because of the pandemic. And I can now say how grateful I am for the year and a half it took to bring Approval Junkie version two to the stage because we all changed. We all, even even those of us who have escaped the worst parts of this pandemic. Some people have had such harrowing experiences. And even those of us who are lucky to emerge almost entirely unscathed, we are all forever changed. And I needed the time and self-awareness to, to express those changes somehow in the story of me that I got
0: to put on stage. And it comes through beautifully listening to the recent release of Approval Junkie as an Audible original, which was recorded while you were performing the show live. Is that correct?
1: That's right. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I would go out on stage. I didn't know which nights they were recording because they didn't record every night. So I would go out on stage. I wore a microphone, one of those tiny mics that the real Broadway performers do. Mm. Uh, made me feel big time, Lois. And, you know, it was connected under my hair and came out at the top of my forehead. And, yeah, they recorded my performances.
0: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois is speaking with journalist, actor, comedian, and author Faith Saley. Her award-winning memoir, Approval Junkie, is now available as an Audible original. Well, listening to the recent release of the Audible original of Approval Junkie, I loved hearing the new opening to the show. Would you tell us about your dear family friend, Ruth?
1: Thank you for asking about Ruth. She died three weeks short of 106. This was a lady who lived through history. She survived two global pandemics when she was two years old. Her own father at 26 died of, of the Spanish flu. And Ruth ran away from home, I think when she was 20, to join the European Socialists and kissed Ernest Hemingway on the boat ride over. And then she gets to Europe and she's going through Germany with this guy who kind of had the hots for her. But then he keeps asking her if she's Jewish. And she thinks, you know what? Maybe it's time I turn around and get home, right? I think this is 1939 or something. And so she comes back to New York, where she was born, and becomes like a vice president of a major company, which was pretty unheard of in the 40s and 50s. And Lois, at the ripe young age of 72, she decides to become sober. And she always said, I I became sober when I was a kid. And by the time I met her, she was 100. If you met her, you would have thought maybe she was the most perspicacious 80-year-old you'd ever met. (laughs) And when the pandemic started... She moved her AA meetings because she ran two AA meetings a week, and she called her group All My Children. And and you can imagine that 70- and 80-year-old alcoholics loved being in a group led by a 100-year-old, right, to have, to have some kind of mentor, someone to look up to. She moved her AA meetings onto Zoom. Hmm. So At 103 and 4, she's running AA meetings on Zoom through the pandemic. And she would always yell, meet me at the (laughs) barricades." She was. She never forgot to vote for president, right? And she was born four years before women could vote for president. And she made history. She didn't just live history. She made history in October of 2020 when we're sitting across from Lincoln Center at the bakery where we always met with her and there was she had this like constellation of friends we all became chosen family and i will tell you lois that the street the cross street on broadway where this bakery is it's called sesame street way because that's where the original sesame street was filmed and it's 63rd west 63rd and it always moves me to think about I mean, it did become Sesame Street. It's where you reach out and see your neighbors and and choose them as family. And it was the first day of early voting. And we look across the street at Lincoln Center and the lines are around the block. This is the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We want to vote. And I said to Ruth, Ruth, do you want to vote today? And so I I said, I'm going to take you over there. She said, I don't want to stand in line. I said, Ruth, you're 104. You don't have to stand in line. So she push it, She moves with her walker faster than I've ever seen her move, like not even to get cinnamon babka. Has she gone faster than this? <laughs> and we get across the street and, and we're just kind of yelling, 104-year-old coming through and my six-year-old daughter's holding her hand and my husband and my husband and my son are making way and they let us roll right in. And the person at the front who looks at her ID starts crying oh. when they see that her driver's license says 1916. And she goes up to the to the booth and I start to kind of help her vote. And then I'm like, "Wait a minute. First of all, her vote is her own. And second of all, she, she her first vote was for FDR, so she probably knows how to do this." <laughs> and when we walk out, everyone up and down Broadway starts cheering. And Ruth, the salty old lady, she's so overcome with emotion, she has to sit on her walker and just puts her head in her hands and cries. And I will tell you that when we went to her Shiva, you know, my daughter who's now 7, almost 8, she she found the little voting crown she had made Ruth that day with magic markers and cardboard that that she put on Ruth when she voted. And she asked if she could keep it and we said yes. And she and I talked about how she will never forget that that she held Ruth's hand while she made history. And then of course, my daughter Says, no, mommy, it's her story. Oh. And then I think my work here is done. Right? Oh. Ruth inspired millions of people because her story went viral, and my family was honored to be a part of it.
0: And we should add for listeners that the story went viral because you did a segment on this for CBS Sunday Morning.
1: I did. I did. And before I did the story on her for CBS Sunday Morning, I had tweeted it. And Hillary Clinton retweeted it, and then Mandy Patinka retweeted it, and then George Takai retweeted it, and people all over the world, the hashtag Lois was Ruth to the Booth, and it was like, you know what, if a 104-year-old can go out and vote in a pandemic, you can too.
0: So this is how you begin the Audible original version of Approval Junkie, and there are Other moments that seem new to the Audible play Faith things, we weren't taught or taught to question, as you put it, in suburban Atlanta at that time.
1: That's exactly right. So when we returned to the script, and we as Amanda Watkins, my director and and collaborator, and I, we thought, you know— So in the original production that I did in Atlanta in 2019, I walked out on stage and talked about where I went to high school and talked about, I don't mean to brag Lois, but I talked about how I won my high school pageant, (laughs) Miss Aphrodite 1989. And that was a kind of fun, you know, ridiculous, audacious crowd pleaser. And we thought, we can't just walk out on stage and pick up like nothing just happened over these past two years. Which is why when I begin the show in this iteration, I sat quietly. I sat on the front of the stage right next to the audience, right, whose eyes I can see. I can't see their faces because they're masked. And we chose to tell the story of Ruth because it felt like a way in to talk about what we'd all been through, a pandemic, how important it was to save our democracy, how Ruth's vote was one for science and, and it was against white supremacy. And that notion of these things now being more important than ever to all of us, no matter what kind of pandemic you've had, these are more important. And these are things that we cannot take for granted. And so we, we kept calling it a surgical approach to the script. My story is my story. I didn't want to unweave all of the work that we had put in to tell it in its first production. And so, yes, I found places in the script that I'm more aware of now. So for example, talking about this high school pageant, it occurs to me now in a way it didn't before, and especially now that my children are older and ask great questions, like, why was there a pageant only for girls? What? I don't know how many public high schools these days have pageants. It feels very 20th century. And why didn't we question that? And so I added in some of those questions, like, I talk about how in the pageant, in the question and answer portion, I was asked who I admired most and why. And I said, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I did, of course, admire MLK. But at 14, 15, when I answered that question, I didn't really know about him. I didn't know as much about him as a kid growing up in Atlanta as my kids do now in elementary school in New York City. And so I wanted to explore how we now have a vocabulary. We have the word anti-racist that I don't think most of us were using before the pandemic. Do you?
0: I think we certainly were aware of the word before, but it was not used as frequently as it has been in the past two years and tragically because of what unfolded since 2020 as well.
1: Right. So in the pandemic, the words like that and ideas like that took on an urgent relevance. And so I tried to approach it with honesty and like humor. Because I say, you know, I didn't know anything. We weren't taught anything about social justice when I was growing up in suburban Atlanta in the 80s. We just weren't. And I got a fine education. I'm grateful for the teachers I had in high school, but nobody was talking to us about social justice. And we didn't have the words anti-racist. And as I say in my show, anti-racist would have been a nickname for my Aunt Betty. (laughs) And thank you for that
0: laugh. Who collected <laughs> bourbon? Was that it?
1: Oh, that was that was Aunt Grace. I had a lot of aunts. I'm Catholic, <laughs> but um, you know it, it. There were ways to return to the script with a new understanding of what's important and how to be impeccable with my words. There's a part of the show where I talk about praying for my children as I was trying to become a mother in my 40s and going through fertility treatments. And I would go every day to this beautiful church in my neighborhood and I would pray to Mary. I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I'm culturally in Catholicisms in my DNA. And it felt good to pray to a woman, even if she didn't do fertility treatments. And I would always (laughs) see This woman who appeared to be experiencing homelessness because she was always in a pew sometimes sleeping and she wore a turban and so in the first production of approval junkie i i referred to her as the woman in the turban and when we went back to the script this time several different people suggested that maybe that's not the best way to identify her and i said okay i hear you But you realize, y'all, it's the truth. Like, to me, that's the identifier. I don't mean to load the word turban. It's like saying the woman in the red glasses. And what we had really meaningful conversations about, Lois, was the difference between intent. Because my intention, I thought, was good. I just wanted to identify this woman. I don't think there's anything wrong with wearing a (laughs) a turban intent and impact, right? And so I learned a lot. I grew up. I grew up rewriting the script. I grew up over the past couple of years. Sometimes you say things and you don't mean to be hurtful. You don't mean to suggest things that could hurt people. And yet you need to be you. I'm talking about me. One needs to be open to learn about the impact of our words. If it's easy to change, if it doesn't hurt anybody, why not make those changes? So Those were really meaningful lessons to me as I returned to my script. And sometimes it was excruciating. It was hard to know what to change and what
0: to keep. Author, comedian, and journalist, Faith Saley. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois It's Great to have you along. My guest today is the journalist, comedian, and author Faith Saley. She is also a panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a contributor for CBS Sunday Morning, and an actor. Her 2016 book, Approval Junkie, was adapted for the stage and premiered in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater, later went to New York as an off-Broadway play, and is now available as an Audible original. Approval Junkie is funny and honest, and Sally does not hold back from serious personal topics including her anorexia. Here she details her struggle with body positivity.
1: I feel like the phrase embracing our curves has been a a wonderful part of this body positivity movement that I think has been going on for so long and I think we're all expected not only to to embrace our curves and to be supportive of all different body types, as we should be, that there's no room for, for people to whisper, I, I say those things, I want them for other people, but I don't like my body. I, I feel like that's a reality. I feel like those kind of issues, which, here's the thing, Lois, during this pandemic, right? do you remember before the pandemic, a lot of us were talking about Me Too. Then there's a pandemic, people are dying, then there's the Black Lives Matter movement and social justice and all these massively, massively important issues that lots of people are finally talking about. And when it came time to bring my my little personal stories back onto the stage, I did have a moment where I had to say to, to Amanda, my collaborator, and to our executive producer, our artistic producer... Is it okay to tell my stories? Is 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 it okay that I'm going to talk about, like having an eating disorder? Is it okay I'm going to stand on stage and talk about how I chose what to wear to my divorce, even though my husband, my ex husband, in the end never looked at me? Is it okay to talk about infertility? Or are all those things privileges that I had too many dresses to decide what to wear to court that I could afford to freeze my eggs and you know, go through miscarriages, but then have a baby. And we had very real conversations where we said, yes, everything that everyone else is going through is real and crucial and urgent. And, and these stories of what it means to be a woman and a human person, these stories matter. And so when you asked me earlier about the impact of my book and my play on my life, it is a constant, gratifying reminder that every time we choose to tell the truth and be vulnerable, we are connecting with someone. No matter how specific your story is, there's some kind of namaste in the world. Someone is grateful that you told your truth.
0: Yes. Faith, do you ever feel the mirror is still the toughest audience you've faced? (laughs)
1: is yeah sometimes well uh, it's certain i talk about in my show how hard it was to care so much about appearing beautiful or to be thought beautiful by other people when i was an actor in la in the 20 in my 20s and 30s i was about to say in the 20s and 30s <laughs> with like with like a long invisible cigarette looking like a flapper i am grateful that my career has not been based on the way I look I now have this I hate when people say what's your brand that's so barfy but (laughs) I I think it's fair to say that if if I'm somebody's jam if people like what I have to say it's because they probably think I'm smart or or you know at least scrappy and well-prepared and and funny and irreverent right all those things that I, that I hope I am and, you know, throw in maybe feminist and progressive and, and we got ourselves a deal.
0: All good. And
1: none of that is based on how I look. And so I'm, I'm grateful as I enter my 50s that I I, I, I get to do podcasts. Nobody really cares how I look. And yet, and yet, <laughs> I still receive emails from strangers. And I just said emails plural, not just a one-off. I still receive emails from strangers or or comments in social media telling me, for example, that I need to get bangs. (laughs) I am 50 years old. I... Don't you think it crossed my mind to get bangs at, at, like, probably every five years? These are usually from men, not always. One of these emails is featured in my show, right? And, and I will tell you, Lois, no matter what kind of audience we had, whether it was, like, a very laughy audience or a fairly quiet audience, the one part of the show that would always kill would be when I would read verbatim an email from Bob in Indiana telling me that my forehead is large enough that you could land planes on it and it's distracting and may i suggest you either wear a hat a, what was a hat slash cap get bangs or wear a do-rag <laughs> anything but your big bare bold brow and the notion that someone would take the time to compose that look me up and either send it to me on social media or on email. And also, the fact that, do, do you think any man, do you think any man is receiving an email from anyone suggesting that he get bangs?
0: <laughs> do, I mean, really. Maybe get rid of a toupee, I don't know. Maybe. but right. I See, I, I don't understand the source of that chutzpah. Is it because it's email? Is it because the anonymity, right? the anonymity of someone telling you how you really should look?
1: I I love that you just use the word chutzpah, because when I think of chutzpah, I think of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Like, right? Like, chutzpah is a good thing. And this is like, there needs to be, I'm sure there's some Yiddish word that captures what unbelievably obnoxious chutzpah is. It
0: nerves. <laughs> it's the audacity
1: I, I, Exactly. And, and so here's an example, another example, Lois, of like updating this version of the show from the last version, which is at this point in my life, I not only think that's pretty damn funny that Bob in Indiana is emailing me about my forehead. I know my forehead's gigantic. And by the way, dude, if I had lived in the Middle Ages, I would be at the height of fashion. People were shaving their foreheads back to look like Queen Elizabeth the First. Yep. But second of all... I also have a lens on it now that my daughter's almost eight that's misogyny that's just like straight up misogyny and so instead of feeling hurt, it also makes me a little angry and I want to call it out for what it is in the show yeah. I call it bang splaining but like. <laughs> But I also, thank you for laughing, but in the same sentence I call it bangsplaining, I also call it misogyny. And and it's just like my anti-racist joke, right? There is room, or I think there ought to be, to talk about really important things that are negative or complicated and to have some irreverence around them and to make people laugh while we're talking about them. And so that's one of the examples where I was like, I want to put that email in because that was an update from my 2019 show. And I want to call it misogyny. And someday when my daughter can see this show, I want her to know what she shouldn't have to put up with.
0: Faith, at what age do you think you would let your kids see the show or read the memoir?
1: I wish you could see that. That just puts such a big smile on my face because that's such a good question, Lois. I am always waiting for the day. My son reads everything. You know, my book has been on one of our bookshelves this whole life. (laughs) And he can also just Wikipedia me. I'm waiting for the day when my kids are like, Mom? you were married before. <laughs> because, we, because I'm not ashamed of that, no. but I don't think it's information I need to give them until they ask about it. And in fact, we were staying in a home with that Someone had an Alexa. My kids kept saying, Alexa, who is Faith Saley? <laughs> I was like, Alexa, ixnay on the ex-husband A. <laughs> like, like we, don't, we don't need to tell. Alexa, don't tell the kids everything. I think that when my kids are teenagers how about this you know my husband is Jewish if my kids decide to have a bar and bat mitzvah that's the day they become a man and a woman they can
0: listen to my show I love it I love it.
1: you know I I will say that the end of my show I'm speaking to my daughter Minerva and I am giving her you know little little lessons that I've learned and we crafted them very deliberately so that they could be specifically for my daughter but also apply apply to everyone and my kids came to the very last show. They came at the at the end because there were parts of it they they didn't that I don't think are appropriate for them to hear. So my daughter was my daughter was off in the wings and ah oh, this makes me emotional and I was standing on stage off Broadway talking to her and she got to hear the lessons that I that I want her to know. And of course I want my son to know them too. And at the end of the show One of the things I say to her is, remember when you held Ruth's hand to vote, never forget it and never forget to vote. (laughs) And those words, those words mean even more now.
0: Would you talk about your mom's recipes?
1: (laughs) My mom loved to bake. She loved to, she loved to take care. She loved to provide. And, and, you know, I, I grew up in a time before you could go online and find a recipe. And when she died, I was 26, she was 53. And I had that horrible task of going through her stuff. My dad was overwhelmed with grief and didn't want to. And um, I think the assumption was I being the only daughter, you go through her stuff, because there's probably things there you'll want. And, you know, I got a couple of important Pieces of jewelry and her having all her clothes made me too sad. I remember donating them to a a woman's shelter. And what I wanted, I learned were her recipes. And what was, you know, interesting about that was that I hadn't wanted to learn how to cook or bake. She, she always took care of me. And then I went to college and I spent most uh, most of my time trying not to eat. And I was, you know, I was getting a master's in literature and reading Virginia Woolf and Doc Martens. Like the, the, the kitchen was not a room of one's own. It felt very retrograde to think about being in the kitchen. And then to realize that what I wanted were her recipes. It was a turning point for me it just to, to hold those index cards in my hand and see her handwriting. You know, Lois, there's something so gripping about someone's handwriting. I think even more so today when we're used to our communications with people most often take place with text or email. And, you know, she would have recipes from her tennis partners. You remember those, right? Like in the... Oh,
0: yes. I I too have saved recipes in my mom's handwriting and some letters that she wrote. Just... And to see that... It, it brings a smile. It's so evocative of so much.
1: It is. And it's like a scent, you know, when we smell something familiar. Just see. That's right. Evocative. That's the word.
0: I saved her Chloe, too. <laughs> it's been 12 years, Faith. Oh. And I still have her fragrance.
1: Do you ever wear it?
0: It's a little strong for my taste, but... I sniff it often yeah. because yeah. I experience her that way. And you're telling about your mom's recipes, about how she baked for prisoners. Yes. Yes. And I think the most gorgeous part is your description of vanilla.
1: She would add notes to the recipes in her handwriting, things she changed or added. And she always doubled and, and sometimes tripled the vanilla extract when I first tried to write about my mother back before it was a play back when it was a book I thought how 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 do you how do you condense someone who meant the world to you who shaped you into one chapter and I had to do it through a metaphor once I realized oh it's vanilla it's vanilla because vanilla is exquisite. Vanilla comes from an orchid and it's a spice, right? It's spicy. And when we talk about someone as being, oh, he's vanilla, you know, mm-hmm. that's supposed right. That's supposed to mean they're plain vanilla, right? They're they're nothing. They're they're forgettable. But vanilla was my mom because when you put vanilla in a recipe, it doesn't take over, it just enhances everything. And my mom, she was so she was so generous of spirit. She, she just wanted to show up for you. She was one of those people. When she died, everybody said, well, well, Gail, Gail is my mom's name. And it's my daughter's middle name. Gail was my best friend. Oh, no, Gail was my best friend. The, The way Gail listened to me. And I love remembering her that way in contrast to so much of the urgent pull of my life, which has been Wanting to have the spotlight, right? Wanting, uh, you know, explicitly wanting approval, loving to hear laughter and applause, where my mom was so happy to be audience, to be the support. And that's what I felt like I could dig into when I talk about vanilla. And when I bake with my kids, they all they call my mom Gigi, Grandma Gail. And of course, she died 20 something years before they were ever born they always get to add the vanilla my kids do and i have no limit i mean and you know how expensive vanilla extract is but sometimes (laughs) if the recipe calls for one teaspoon they put in like seven so probably Mm -hmm. we're making people drunk when they eat our baked goods but they always say this is for Gigi.
0: it's such a tribute to her it's like a sacred ritual as you describe it oh gosh faith I want to touch on so much else because this show is so fantastic. I will abbreviate your telling of your divorce. This also struck me as even sadder than it did in person, (gasps) almost like a gut punch. Maybe because I couldn't see John, I couldn't see your husband although I saw him at the Alliance Theater, so I knew, okay. You
1: know he's real. Yes,
0: but can we fast forward to your mensch in shining armor to John? You Mm. give a hilarious description of the curated approach (laughs) that you preferred to online date.
1: Yes, we say when people ask us how we met, we say we met not through J date, which most people know is like a Jewish, you know, matchmaking service. We met through Gay Date because my gay best friend Manfred and his gay best friend Rob were having lunch in West Hollywood and decided to set their New York friends up. And the rest was history, and um both Manfred and Rob were in our wedding, they are the godparents of our children. And in my show, I talk about how a friend of mine, a writer-producer who wrote the Seinfeld, famous Seinfeld episode about Festivus, so he's hilarious. He found out about when John and I were dating, and he called our courtship the Jewish Semen Acquisition Project, (laughs) which he shortened to JSAP, and he would yell JSAP ASAP all the time. So so yes, that part of the show is actually called JSAP and you know john i we didn't we didn't meet until we were 39 we got married at 40. i had never been pregnant in my life suddenly i'm pregnant so we like to say that jewish semen is magic well
0: it sure worked it for you (laughs) comedian journalist and author faith saley more of our discussion is coming up after a short break amplifying atlanta This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just tuning in, my guest today is Faith Saley. The Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist is also an actor, comedian, journalist, and author. Salie grew up in Atlanta, and here she shares a story about running into her childhood mentors at the Fox Theater.
1: I wanted to share something wonderful that happened after the Wait, Wait show The Fox that has to do with my mention, Shining Armor. Uh, My mentors uh, as a kid, when I was growing up in Atlanta doing professional children's theater, I was with the Atlanta Workshop Players. And and they are run by a couple named Lynn and Don Stallings. And so Lynn and Don were at the show. And after the show, Don pulls me aside and he says, I have to tell you that the, the picture you posted on social media of your husband, John, looking at you as you read your book at a book event is a picture that I show to my acting classes. Now, Don has never met my husband, even though he's known me since I was 13. And he said, I show this picture to my acting classes to show people what love looks like. Oh. And again, talk it's like the extra vanilla of my mom, the way that my husband supports me and, and humors my, my need to... <laughs> to share so much of our lives and, um, and be a performer. And in this photo, the photo is, I'm holding a book and I'm in profile, but it is John and the way he is looking at me, do my thing, that, that Don said he shows people you can be 50 feet across a room from someone and demonstrate that you love them. And I was so, so touched by that.
0: Beautiful. We cannot omit your dad and mm. your lifelong conversation with him through books. I love this line, Faith, the legacy of words with their unearthed meanings. Do you and your dad still communicate through books?
1: The books we communicate through now, it's almost like my son has moved in there. My son is almost 10. And I've never seen someone read so much. And my son also likes to write and he has he has a very specific voice. He's very funny. And so now when we visit my dad, I can see my dad has books waiting to my son's name is Augustus. My dad it's like he's rubbing his hands together, waiting for my son to come. And and in fact it was my dad when I had a when I had a baby shower before I had Augustus. I asked people to give me books, that's all I want. And so, you know, people are giving us Goodnight Moon and the Giving Tree. And my dad sends Moby Dick and Portrait of the Artist as a
0: young man. <laughs> what every baby needs.
1: Right. And and to me what that I knew what that meant. First of all, those are his very favorite books. And second of all I'm an old mom, which means my dad's an old grandfather. And I knew that a part of that, whether it was conscious or not, was like, I may not be around, kid, when you're old enough to read these books. But when you get there, I want them to be from your grandfather. So now, you know, like we just visited my dad recently and my son had to do a project on pyramids and we had told my dad about it. And so we show up and within the hour that we're you know, unpacking at his house in Florida, because P.S. All grandparents live in Florida. He has three books on pyramids that he's been waiting, waiting to show my son. And then he has like a book about baseball written by Ted Williams. And my son's totally into baseball. My dad's totally into Ted Williams. And so it's a really, it's a really beautiful thing to see that connection now has passed on to the next generation.
0: I hope in our next conversation that we will have more time to talk about some of your CBS Sunday contributions. There is one that I would love for you to just talk a little bit about before we go, and that was your word for the year for 2021.
1: Yeah, for for a lot of the time I've been on Sunday morning, I've looked at whatever the Merriam-Webster or Oxford English Dictionary word of the year is, and whatever it was decided, I kind of dug into that. And this year it was vaccine, and it just didn't hit me in the kishkas like <laughs> like like Jerry Zachs taught me. He just taught me that Yiddish word, Lois. Jerry Zachs is the wonderful Broadway director yeah and also my yiddish coach and i i thought you know god bless vaccines that's why so many of us are okay today but there's a word that sustained me and it's grace and i found in my life over the past year so many people using that word and Maybe it's because I'm lucky enough to work in the arts. Maybe we arts, music, literature, theater people use that word a lot, you know, because I asked my husband who's in corporate America and he was like, nobody is saying grace on our Zoom calls. (laughs) And I was like, God, honey, I'm sorry. But in our rehearsal room for Approval Junkie, in our conversations for the podcasts I work on. So many people dropped that word. When I was growing up, it had re- religious connotations or it meant say grace, like say thanks before you eat. And now I think we all need this expansive definition of this word, which to me, and I think to so many others when I talk to them about it, means like make space for humanness, make space for people trying to show up, for people's fallibility. It's a kind of patience for someone's vulnerability and for our own. And when I was talking to you about learning about the difference between intent and impact, it's giving people, it's giving people room to mess up in the way that you would to your children or the people you love. Learning to give that to yourself in these really challenging times and learning to give it to strangers.
0: I think it is a noble quality. I think it is very fitting that you chose that word. Faith, your gratitude is stunning. And this has been such a joy. I can't wait to talk with you again.
1: Oh my gosh, Lois, me too. I'm like in tears that this has to end. I am always so moved by your questions because they lead me to things I didn't know I knew.
0: Well, you know a whole lot, girl. (laughs) Faith Saley, the author, comedian, journalist, and so much more. Her one-woman show, Approval Junkie, is now available as an Audible original. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website wabe.orgslash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogs. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Kennavy. I'm your host, Lois Wrights. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W A B E at